Now, nearly 25 years have passed since the end of chapter 4, which we looked at last year. So 25 years have gone by. And nearly 70 years since the beginning of the book in chapter 1. Daniel now is a senior statesman in Babylon, and he's outlasted most, if not all, of his contemporaries, even Nebuchadnezzar himself. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead now for about 20 years. And since his death, history records there has been a series of monarchs that had succeeded him on the throne. Now, all these rulers of Babylon that succeeded Nebuchadnezzar either died prematurely or were assassinated. It is an ugly part of history. 20 years of change of leadership after change of leadership after change of leadership. And all of this led to Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nadiblus, to become king. Now, he's not stated in the text this morning, but his son, Belshazzar, is listed. We see that Belshazzar's father was actually the king, and as the text infers that Belshazzar was the second in power. Now, chapter 5 references that Nebuchadnezzar is Belshazzar's father four times in the chapter. However, this should be understood as the father of the nation. It should be understood that Nebuchadnezzar was the leading patriarch of his family. As we would say that George Washington is the father of our country type of thing. Now by the time Daniel chapter 5 comes upon us, the Persians under the reign of Cyrus were attacking the surrounding providences and territory of of Babylon. As you remember, Daniel interpreted the dream, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 and told Nebuchadnezzar that another kingdom inferior to Babylon would rise and rule the earth. And now, in chapter 5, this kingdom of silver has come upon the world stage, the Persian Empire. Now remember that even though the Bible is in concert with world history, the main objective of Scripture is to record history as it relates to the redemptive purposes of God. So God's Word records world history through the lens of redemptive history. But secular history fills in the detail which is very useful for us to have a full understanding for which will bring in to today's sermon. In this case, secular history records that the current king of Babylon, that is Belshazzar's father, went out to defend the Babylonian empire from the Persians' assault. And when he did, his army was defeated, he was captured and held as a prisoner of war for the rest of his life, never returning to the city of Babylon. The Persians were in control and all the providences and the territory surrounding the capital city had been conquered. Only the city of Babylon with its massive walls remained. So Cyrus advanced the Persian army and surrounded the great city of Babylon. This is the context 
of chapter 5. Now Babylon was not just beautiful on the inside, but it was a fortress for any on the outside. Babylon was 14 square miles, and it had these outer walls which were 87 feet thick and 350 feet high in some place. President Trump would say this wall was excessive. (laughs) All the walls were designed with an inner and outer barrier with a water moat in between. And all this made Babylon very, very secure. Now, there were hundreds of towers that were on top of these inner walls so that if somebody did get over the outer wall, then these towers provided perfect aim for those intruders to be targets. Also, it's important for you to understand is that the Euphrates River flowed through the middle of the city of Babylon, providing continual source of fresh water for its gardens, its streams, its livestock, and most importantly, its citizens. And where the river entered and exited the city, Nebuchadnezzar had designed a water gate that allowed the water to flow in, but it prohibited by a system of like a gate below that prohibited intruders from being able to swim under the water gate and enter the city. Trust me, all this information is going to be very helpful later on, okay? I know it sounds like a history lesson now, but just know it's going to make sense. Now, inside this secure, the security of the city, verse 1 tells us that King Belisar had a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Now, you might think it's strange that the king would be hosting a party for a thousand people when the Persian army is just right outside those walls. But you see, this shows their confidence in the city's security. For generations, the Babylonians had been told that the city of Babylon could not be conquered. And these nobles, they believed what they had been taught. Too often, those who put their trust in Babylon, those who put their trust in the kingdom of this world, seek God's wisdom way too late. They put their trust in their own significance. They put their trust and they adopt the standards of this age. They reject the pursuit of God's wisdom found in his word. But the Bible tells us the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. Instead of seeking the truth of God from the pages of scripture, people will listen to the voices of Babylon that tell them peace and security. Everything's going to be all right. But it's a lie. And those voices are speaking to us now in our Babylon. It's a lie. This is what's happening in chapter 5. We know that the storehouses of Babylon had plenty of supplies to provide 
food and, and other items for years. So throwing a party, especially for his dignitaries, would be good for national morale. And Belazazar would use this feast to reinforce his place as ruler, to assure his top officials that the city was secure, and to remind the people of the greatness of their gods, the gods of Babylon. Just like the prisoners of Alcatraz could hear the New Year's Eve celebration coming from the banks of the Bay of San Francisco and were frustrated. Believe me, Cyrus and his army, as they heard them partying inside that place, were frustrated that they couldn't get in. Now, dinner's been served. And the wine starts flowing freely. And it doesn't take long. People are feeling pretty good. After one toast, after another, is hoisted up to their city, to their country, to their gods. Often, intoxication will cause us to feel invincible. Then, while Belazazar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Remember, chapter 1 told us that after Nebuchadnezzar had captured Jerusalem, that he took vessels from the temple in Jerusalem and brought them to Babylon. These sacred gob goblets had been under lock and key for 70 years. And now this second-rate king orders them to be used as common utensils to serve their, his guests more wine. And as they drank, verse 4 tells us, the wine, they praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. It's important that you recognize the, the, the decreasing value there from gold all the way down to stone is that they are, didn't miss one. Let's have another drink for that one. Let's have another drink for that one. Let's have another drink for that one. All the way through. And there's a lot of gods in Babylon. Now, let me make a few points so that we can understand the severity of this mockery. Belazazar's mockery stems from his defiance to surrender his life to the Lord of Heaven. This is exactly what Daniel tells him in the first part of verse 23. Yet, Daniel says, you have set yourself up against the Lord of Heaven. Those who trust in Babylon have a false sense of pride and self-security that deceives them to set themselves up against the Lord of Heaven. They will not surrender to the Lord of Heaven. And this is why God sends His messengers to every generation and will continue to send His messengers for each generation to come as the Lord tarries. And the message is, repent, save yourself from this perverse generation. Save yourself from Babylon. 
The call of God is for us to save ourselves from the destruction of Babylon by the mercies of God in Jesus Christ. Do not be deceived. If you do not surrender to the Lord of heaven, you are destined for destruction. And it doesn't thrill me to tell you that, but it's true. Belazazar mocks the Most High God that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had honored in the later years of his life that we looked at last week in chapter 4. Daniel states that Belazazar knew the details of his grandfather's conversion. You knew it, Daniel said. Well, of course he knew it. The whole empire knew it. Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar sent a written testimony to everyone in the, in the empire about his conversion to God, the Most High God, the Lord of Heaven. Belzazar, though, did not follow his grandfather's example. But rather he mocks the Lord of Heaven. Instead of humbling himself before God... The God who held his life in his hands, Belazazar, stood in defiance and would not bend his knee. But what is interesting to note, that even though he had this spiritual defiance, when Belazazar witnessed the hand of God writing on the wall, the text reads that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Isn't it ironic that the king who would not bow his knee to God lost all control of the lower parts of his body, lost all strength in his legs? The point is that eventually every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and you might as well do it now before he handicaps you. Belazazar's mockery is visualized by having these temple goblets brought into the feast where everyone was drinking wine from them as they gave praise to their God. They praised the God of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, and Daniel adds, which cannot see or hear or understand. Professing to be wise, these nobles became fools, exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image of the form of a corruptible man, of birds, of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen? To understand the severity of this mockery, you must understand that God had ordained the temple in Jerusalem, its furniture, its utensils, its sacrifices, its offerings for worship that pointed towards the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I want, to guard, I want to call you to guard your heart from any form of superstitious idea about the temple and the things in it. God designed the temple and the things in it to point to Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches this clearly in the New Testament. It's fact. 
That's what the problem is. You have to understand Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple and everything in it. Therefore, when Belazazar orders the wine to be served from these goblets, he's mocking God's plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. He is trampling underfoot the Son of God. He is treating God's redemption as some unholy thing. He's insulting the spirit of grace. And God's word warns those who mock God in such a way as this that they will receive a severe punishment. Belazazar mocked the Lord of heaven, treating God's holy redemption as something common every day. No big deal, nothing special. Have another drink. He mocked the, the incorruptible God by praising corruptible things as being superior. He mocked God by showing contempt towards the one who actually held his life in his hands. And brothers and sisters, hear the word of God. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote on the plaster wall near the lampstand of the royal palace. And the king watched the hand as it wrote. His, his face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. So as this drunken mockery was going on, the fingers of a man's hand appears and starts writing on the plaster wall. Now again, the, the feast was held in a great hall, enough, large enough to host a thousand dinner guests. And the hall, of course, was lit by torches similar to our tiki torches. Remember, this was before electricity. <laughs> So, these torches would provide partial light. So, lampstands would be positioned in certain areas of greater importance, like near the king. And notice, the writing of the wall went, happened near the lampstand. So, near the king. The writing on the wall was like a neon sign. Glaring into this dimly lit hall so that everybody could see it. The whole experience frightened Belazazar so badly that he had symptoms of a stroke or, or a heart attack. And so the king wastes no time and immediately summons the wise men and says, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. Now, the, the man's hand wrote three words, probably in Aramaic. But they probably wouldn't have any vowels, only consonants. So those of you who are fans of will of fortune know the importance of buying a vow. I can hear Pat Sajak saying right now, buy a vow, buy a vow, like Barbara and I do yelling at the TV set every night, buy a vow. <laughs> but even though the words were illumined like a neon sign, the king and his wise man, men needed 
the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Illumination is the ability that the Holy Spirit gives to believers to understand and to embrace the Word of God. So even if they would have bought a vow, they would not have been able to interpret the words because they needed the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Illumination is simply God turning on the lights so that we can understand His Word. Remember how it was before you became a Christian where you would read the Bible and you didn't understand what was it was talking about at all? The reason it was like that is because before Christ entered our lives, the Bible tells us we were blind to God's Word. We were darkened in our understanding. You could read the words, but you couldn't understand what they meant. But by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit comes and turns the lights on for us so that we can read the Word and, and understand the Word of God. Therefore, the eyes of our hearts have been enlightened. Praise be to His holy name. The inability for the wise men to understand the inscription caused the king to be even more alarmed. His face grew even paler, and everyone in the great hall was totally freaked out. So the queen enters the room. This is Nebuchadnezzar's widow. This is Belazazar's grandmother. She probably wasn't in attendance of the great feast because of her age. Somebody must have ran and got her because they thought that Belazazar was going to die. And so when she enters the hall and she offers calming words, basically telling her grandson, sober up, boy. She reminds him about Daniel and how his God had given him gifts of illumination, insights, and wisdom. She encourages Belshazzar to summons Daniel because of his ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. So, Daniel is brought before the king and his guest. Again, remember, Daniel is an elder statesman, probably in his 80s at this point. And Belazazar was probably taken back by this old man coming into the great hall and wondered, is this really the guy that grandma was talking about? This old man? I tell you, age discrimination is everywhere. So, Daniel's identification is confirmed. And Belazazar explains what happens and offers Daniel the same reward as he did the wise men if Daniel could give an interpretation of the handwriting on the wall. Let's, 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 let's rewind just a little bit. As the old man Daniel walks into that hall, those words were glaring down on him. He immediately knew what those words meant. Notice that Daniel didn't give his customary greeting to Belazazar. Oh, king, live forever. Because he knew the king's days, time was just numbered. So why in the world would he say, oh, king, live forever, when he knows he's going he's to hit the bucket tonight? Daniel tells Belzazar, yeah, keep the gifts. Give them to whoever you want to. 
But I'll go ahead and interpret the words on the wall. Notice, though, a great part of his presentation to Belazar is condemning Belazar for, for the mockery that he's shown towards his grandfather's throne. And the mockery that he's shown towards his grandfather's God. And then he gives the king the message from God. Daniel first explains to Belazar and to everyone in the hall that the hand that wrote these words was sent from God. The God that his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, worshipped. Daniel then says, this is the inscription that was written. Meany, meany, tekel, person. Then Daniel speaks directly to Belazar. And he says, this is what these words mean. Meany, God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. God's message to Belazar was clear and direct. God has brought an end to his reign. He has been found deficient and his kingdom will be given over to the Persians. God's message to Belazar is exactly the same message he gives to each one of us. God has numbered our days, and one day our reign on earth will end. Each of us is found deficient because we don't meet up to God's standards. And one day our individual kingdoms that we work so hard for will be given to another. So since we know these things, since God has given us clear and direct message about these things, what type of people should we be? Are we going to be like people who live in the deception of Babylon, destined for destruction? Or are we going to be the people living for the glory of Christ's kingdom, longing for a better city that is a heavenly one, looking for a city whose architect and builder is God? What type of people are we going to be as we dwell in Babylon here? Now, after hearing God's message, Belazar commands, commands that Daniel be clothed in purple, a gold chain be put on his neck, and, and he is proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. What, what is interesting is that the king's response indicates, first of all, that he believed that Daniel's interpretation was true. But his response also mirrors, mirrors his life. Sadly, he comes up short and doesn't take God's message as an opportunity to repent. Listen to me. The Lord has been patient with you, not willing that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. 
Don't squander God's message to you. Don't squander the good news of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins that he's given to you. Don't squander it. Don't squander it. But rather repent and believe in the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Amen? Amen. But Belazazar stood firm in his defiance towards God. And that very night, Belazazar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. <laughs> As happily... Chapter 4 ended with Nebuchadnezzar's conversion and praises to the Most High God. Chapter 5 ends in darkness, death, and destruction. That very night, the king's time ran out. That very night, the writing on the wall was fulfilled. That very night, Belzazar was killed, slain. And Cyrus, the king of Persia, appointed Darius the Mede to govern the kingdom of Babylon. That very night. That's how quick it can happen. Now, secular history fills in a lot of detail of exactly how the Persians finally entered into Babylon. According to ancient historians and archaeological findings, Cyrus, the king of Persia, was frustrated by the inability to attack Babylon because of these walls. Cyrus knew that the Babylonians had laid up provisions for many years inside of Babylon, and he had already wasted so much time outside that fortress city. You know, he has an uh, empire to run here, you know. So, he eventually comes up with a plan. And he stationed the bulk of his army near the water gate where the Euphrates River enters into Babylon. And then he stations another battalion of soldiers at the river where it exits Babylon. And he orders both groups to enter the city as soon as the river level becomes shallow enough so that they can pass under the water gate. And then Cyrus marches the rest of his army up the banks of the Euphrates until he comes to a spot where there is an existing swamp. I just want you to listen to this, 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 this respected historian from centuries ago. Quote, Cyrus then dug a trench and diverted the flow of the Euphrates River into a new channel that led to an existing swamp. The level of the river then dropped to such a level that it became like a stream his army was, able, was then able to take the city by marching through the shadow waters. The Babylonians at that time were celebrating intensely at a feast to one of their gods, and they were taken totally by surprise. 
unquote. Secular history in concert with biblical history, biblical history giving us the redemptive narrative. Are you all getting this? The attack of the Persians against the, the, the residents of Babylon was brutal. Maybe as they were so vicious because they were ventilating their frustrating, their frustration, waiting so long outside of those walls, and then listening to this partying going on inside. So when they got in there, they were vicious. The prophet Isaiah prophesizes, giving us a description of this attack of the Persians upon Babylon that night in chapter 13 of Isaiah. The Lord declares, Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold, and their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. And Babylon, the beauty of the kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Prophet Isaiah. Brothers and sisters, we don't have the gift of revelation like Daniel did. We've probably never experienced a divine act like this writing on the wall. But I'm here to tell you this morning that God has revealed His Word and has written it down in the pages of Scripture. Figuratively speaking, God has written His Word on the wall. It's right here. Tells us everything we need to know so that we can repent, come to Christ, and live for the glory of God. So we should be quick to humble ourselves and to listen to His Word and to seek to obey His commands. Even though we might not know the exact day or hour that the Lord will come, or when He will call us home, we know by His Word that that day is going to come. It's going to come. It's no surprise. What is a surprise, though, is that those who dwell in Babylon keep on telling you, peace and security, peace and security. Don't get all hung up with this religious stuff, that Bible stuff. Come on, man. Enjoy life. Let's have a party. Let's pass the wine. Everything's going to be all right. It's a lie. It's a lie. And Babylon today, this world, the kingdom of this world today, is telling you, don't, don't get too much down into the, that Bible stuff. <coughs> have a glass of wine. Relax. Let's party. I'm telling you, it's a lie. Those in Christ, those whose eyes of their hearts have been enlightened, the Bible says we should be on alert and sober, having confidence in the hope 
of God's calling on upon our lives and confidence in the riches of the glory of his inheritance that he's given to us in God's, in God's word. And what I'm saying to you today is that the writing is on the wall of God's word. Babylon, the kingdoms of this world are going to fall. It might look like they're winning right now, but they're going to fall. Therefore, the call upon all of us is to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. Humble ourselves before him. Seek his will. Learn his word before it's too late. Because one day, we will hear an angel cry out with a loud voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great! That's what the Bible says. So today, let all of us who live by faith in Christ and Christ alone shout out to our God. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory. Amen? Amen. Then let's do it. Let's stand up right now and let's shout out with a loud voice because that's what the Bible says is going to happen. We're going to shout out with a loud voice these words. These are the words we're going to shout out. So let's just might as well get some practice in right now. This is choir practice up in here. All right, let's might as well get it over with right now and learn these words. Because it's going to happen one day. Babylon is going to fall. And then we get to proclaim with a loud voice these words. The Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that even in the midst of this darkness, death, and destruction that we read about in chapter 5, there is a glorious hope found for those in Christ. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Save me from my sins. Claim me as a child of God, not because I'm deserving, but because Jesus Christ's sacrifice was total, complete, and all of his accomplishments by your love have been poured out upon me. Lord Jesus, I claim you as my Savior and my Lord. Come into my life. Save me from my sins. And as a child of God, Lord, help me not to be deceived by Babylon. And help me, Lord, to keep my focus on that great day yet to come. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.